I'm John O'Loughlin. Welcome to Macduff Lives Podcast. The upper hand is still held in the West by people who are committed to a perpetual war because their goal from the beginning has been to destroy the Russian military capability and to defeat Russia as a, quote, adversary or opponent. And for what reason? They don't really believe Russia is about to overrun Western Europe. It's not like the Soviet period when you actually had some fear that they might do that. The fear of Russia is that Russia is leading the breakaway from the collapsing financial system. And good morning, everyone. I'm John O'Loughlin. Welcome to McDuff Lives. Uh, we are very happy to bring Harley Schlanger back to the show. And uh, happy holidays. And how are you? Well, thank you. And the same to you and, and all our wonderful McDuff viewers. Thank you. And uh, it's uh, interesting right now that you guys have been making a big push for a, a Christmas uh, truce that uh, the uh, Pope Francis has uh, has suggested he would host for um, the possibility of some negotiations, but then nobody that should be negotiating seems to want to sit down and negotiate at this point. So, uh, what are your thoughts? Do you is there any chance of a Christmas truce? Well, there are a couple of interesting things about it. the The first is that you know, for all these people who think the Vatican is the source of all evil. You know, I, I think no one's suggesting that the Pope should impose a truce or the Pope should do something other than what he offered, which is a venue for negotiations and his authority as the head of the Catholic Church to see if there can be a, a move toward peace. Now, you know, this, this is a, in a tradition in the more recent period of the role the Vatican played at moments of, of crisis in uh, the East-West relations, namely the Cuba Missile Crisis. The, there was an emissary to Pope, uh, what was it, uh, John, John the Twenty-Third, then, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah it was before Paul. And uh, John was in touch with the, both the Soviet side and the U.S. side, and after the Cuban Missile Crisis, played a role through the an intermediary of Norman Cousins, the editor of Saturday Review. The three of them, in a sense, were working with Kennedy to try to get the test ban treaty. And even though John was Pope John was sick at the time, he was involved in promoting negotiations. The other Christmas truce, of course, there's the famous movie of in World War One, when on the battle in the, of the trenches in France, there was a, I think, a 36-hour truce. And in fact, soldiers from France and Germany got together and exchanged greetings, toasts, but then they went back to fighting. So, uh, but the whole point is there's an escalation underway and it's not coming from Russia. It's coming from the West. Uh, in, in the last couple of days, there, the U.S. defense budget for 2023 was announced, 835 or 837 billion. 
another 73 billion in additional munitions, ammunition for the over the next three years will be tacked on. Uh, the head of Raytheon, the CEO of Raytheon said, look, we've used up six years of production of Stinger missiles in 10 months. So we have to ramp up production and do it quickly. And he said it's going to be a couple of years to get back to where we have stockpiles. Much of the NATO countries are out of their stockpiles. Uh, and yet you have Rishi Sunak going into uh, uh, Latvia and uh, talking about setting up a joint expeditionary force of the Baltic states, the Nordic states, uh, the Netherlands, and, and Britain. And for what purpose? To support Ukraine. There's talk of, of Polish troops actually being engaged in Ukraine. And, and here's a warning for Ukraine. The last thing you want is Polish troops in Ukraine because the Poles may not leave. They want a chunk of Ukraine. The, the talk of British troops in Ukraine, the idea of the Patriot missiles being deployed in Ukraine, which would mean U.S. troops training Ukrainians to use them, whether it's in the United States or Ukraine, it means a deeper involvement in the United States. So the one interesting thing, though, I think about the Vatican proposal is that the Pope had made a statement recently about brutal Russian war crimes. And the Russian Ministry of Defense and the Foreign Ministry took exception to that and said that there's no evidence that's being presented, only Ukrainian claims, and that uh, the, the, it's wrong for the Pope to say that. And within 36 hours, the Pope apologized and said that he spoke out of turn. And at that point, something very interesting happened. Maria Zakharova, the usual tart-tongued a foreign ministry spokesman from the Russian Ministry of Defense, or foreign ministry rather, made a statement. And she said, well, we thank you for that, and it's all forgotten. And then the Russians said, well, that's the actual spirit of Christmas, atonement, apology, and acceptance of the apology. And that does go back to the idea of the pre principle of Westphalia that you don't look for vengeance or revenge, you accept the honest integrity of the negotiating partner, and once you reach an agreement, that's it, you, you have no desire for vengeance or revenge. So there are all these, as you said, John, little signs, but the question is, what about Zelensky? What about Biden? What about the British? So far, there's nothing but more war talk. Well, one of the voices that I've tuned into recently is is Colonel Douglas McGregor, and I, I pretty much learned about him through uh, references from LaRouche and, and Schiller uh, broadcasts, and I've, I've started to pay a good bit of attention to him. I, I think his perspective is almost unique in that he is an actual uh, war-fighting army guy that, you know, was a tank commander, and a guy that really has analyzed things from the modern military point of view. And uh, while I don't understand all the acronyms that they speak about when, <laughs> when they uh, do these interviews, I found myself thinking, well, you know, he's probably right about the, the military situation really being really bad for Ukraine and that the Russians have just been preparing the battlefield. And, 
you know, preparing the battlefield and suckering the Ukrainians into uh, battles that they will uh, will inevitably lose. Uh, some people call it the the idea of of starting a battle and then retreating so that you draw the enemy into the space that you had prepared to kill them in, and they do it. And this seems to be the what what McGregor is saying that the Russians are are masters at at battlefield maneuvering, and they have all the intelligence they need so they can see things happening before they happen. So the question is, why, why, if that's the case, and I, I suspect it is, I mean, the Russian army is, you know, it's not something I, anybody could, you know, just sneeze at. I mean, it's, it's, it, it is, uh, it is a very, very powerful force. So why do people like Biden continue to throw, looks to me like throwing good money after bad. Well, here's the problem. I, I agree with your opinion of uh, McGregor. He seems to be a very serious, thoughtful analyst. What he says generally dovetails with what Scott Ritter is saying. And I think Ritter is someone who on a regular basis is in touch with Russians that he knows from the whole period of uh, his involvement in the disarmament of the post Cold War Soviet bloc disarmament, but he has very much the same view that the Russians, you know, well, here's the, this is where you get to the crux of the question. Does Biden really believe that Ukraine is winning? Do Western military leaders believe that? General Milley doesn't, but you have people all over the media ex-military who say, well, Ukraine is winning. They stopped the Russian assault against Kiev. I, no one has, has yet explained why they believe Russia actually intended to take Kiev. And if they did, why they sent so few troops. The, the idea of the retreat from Kherson, I think, is very easily explained by the fact that the Russians were overextended. Now, that doesn't mean the Russians haven't made some mistakes, that they're not infallible. But this idea that Ukraine is preparing to take Crimea, pre preparing to drive the Russians back completely from Ukraine, is, is silliness. And, you know, if you talk to military people who know something about this in Europe, and there are, by the way, there are a number of ex-NATO officials in France and, and Italy who have been speaking with the Schiller Institute on some of our platforms, uh, joining us very strongly saying that it's a complete mistake for NATO to push ahead in this war. And that the idea that Ukraine is going to come out of this as a victor is wrong. If you look at the fact that the, their, their lights are out in half the country, uh, the Russians at will can shut off electricity. Now, you can call that a war crime if you want, but the Russians are doing that to minimize civilian casualties and to inflict a certain amount of pain on the government. And I think this interview in The Economist from the chief of staff of Ukraine the other day, I think his name is Zeluni or something, where he basically said that they don't have a big enough army at present. They're, they're facing a very difficult battle but if you give me the weapons I need, I think we can win. And what he basically called for was the amount of weaponry that would be needed if the whole U.S. Army moved into Ukraine, which he's not going to get. So I think on this point, McGregor and Ritter 
and, and a few others are, are much more accurate. And then you have people like Paul Craig Roberts who are simply saying that the problem is that the leadership pushing the war is thinking they could win a tactical nuclear war if necessary. And they're either trying to goad Russia into using tactical nuclear weapons, which would most likely lead to, as Stephen Starr has said on a couple of occasions on our platforms, would lead to an all-out nuclear holocaust within hours. Who wants that? Well, you know, you, the, uh, something McGregor said the other day, I think it was two days ago, was really interesting because it was something that I had brought up about two weeks ago. The Zelensky and his allies from NATO sound like Hitler in the bunker. You know, the, and McGregor said, you know, in the famous story is that Hitler was meeting with his general staff saying, we'll move this army here and then we'll have a flank over here and then we'll charge directly ahead. And his generals knew he was crazy at that point because they didn't have the troops to do that. And McGregor said, it's like Hitler in the bunker if you listen to Zelensky. So is someone telling Biden the truth? Is Biden getting the full story? I don't know. If he gets the full story, does it matter? The upper hand is still held in the West by people who are committed to a perpetual war because their goal from the beginning has been to destroy the Russian military capability and to defeat Russia as a, quote, adversary or opponent. And for what reason? They don't really believe Russia is about to overrun Western Europe. It's not like the Soviet period when you actually had some fear that they might do that. The fear of Russia is that Russia is leading the breakaway from the collapsing financial system. That's the great fear. And if Russia is not stopped in Ukraine, if Russia is not humiliated and defeated, Russia is constructing with China, with India, with Saudi Arabia now, with Argentina. You have the global south working with Russia on a new financial system. That's why, whether he knows it or not, the U.S. Defense Secretary Austin says we have to weaken Russia. That's why Blinken says we have to keep going until Russia is defeated. Uh, Sullivan says Russia must be defeated. Newland, Russia must be defeated. Why? Because they're going to swallow up Ukraine? No, because they represent an alternative to this rules-based order, which is so dear to the people who are the pulling the puppet strings of Biden and, and Zelensky and Sullivan and, and Blinken. So many people, when they talk about the evil force in the world today, will say the United States. They will say, you know, America is, you know, the great Satan or the, you know, the evil force in the world. Whereas usually when you and I talk, and, and, and I think most of the Schiller and LaRouche folks would agree that, no, you need to look at Britain. You need to look at the city of London and city of London's um, buddies on Wall Street. But still, this came up again when I was listening to Colonel McGregor, where he was kind of just reciting a little bit of, of his his understanding of history, whereby, you know, the Suez crisis in, in the 50s uh, was a turning point in which the Americans said to Britain, no, you, you will not do this. We are going to stop you. 
And then Britain, of course, was uh, financially devastated before World War II. I think we, we shipped them a bunch of gold in, in my dad's ship, the USS Nashville. And uh, after the war, of course, Britain is financially devastated and in every other way devastated. Somehow, did America and, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, Wall Street, the Dulles brothers, uh, Sullivan and Cromwell, John Foster Dulles in particular, did they go off on our own? Did they say, you know, we're no longer going to work with uh, Britain and we're, we now have enough power that we can get our own financing? We don't need to depend upon the, the city of London and the, the associated banking system and we're going to be our own. Or is that just an illusion and it really is still the, the, the great imperial power represented by, you know, the, the, the history from Rome to Venice to Constantinople to Amsterdam to London. And, and the Wall Street is simply just another branch of that, of that original octopus. But, but look, we- one of the things the British figured out, and this goes back to Gibbon's study of the Roman Empire, is that if you have to preserve an empire with your own forces, that is your own people, it eventually erodes from within. And he writes about the the problem of of becoming dependent on the captured colonies for food because the best of the farmers and the artisans and others of Rome ended up in the army and they weren't producing. So they needed to bring food in and, and then... Their, their own forces became weak. And what they essentially discussed was, how do you use others to fight your battles? And this gets into what is now hybrid warfare. How do you convince others that your desires, that is the desires of the empire, should be the desires of the people you've conquered and that they should become a part of the empire? Now, this obviously appealed to the Dulles brothers. They were totally enamored by the uh, idea of royalty and and the uh, pageantry of of London. We still see this today. You know, when the Queen died, all the breathless commentators talking about, gee, the British really know how to put on a show. Well, their whole kingdom is a show. Uh, the, The country is in terrible shape right now. The United Kingdom is. Their military is, is, is very small compared to what it's been in the past. It's under 80,000 soldiers. They, their military industrial complex, they have nuclear weapons, but they're lesser quality than they used to be. They're dependent on the United States for that, but they still shape the ideas. And this is the importance of understanding what ge- British geopolitics is. That's why I I just have two examples of that. One is an article that was just published by two RAND Corporation uh, officials, Raphael Cohen and Gian Gentili. And the article says, what's the harm in talking to Russia? A lot, actually. And they go through a whole argument as to why it's a mistake to seek a diplomatic settlement. Now, where did the people who wrote this get their talking points? I can't say for sure, but I've been reading what's coming out of Chatham House for the last year. Chatham House is the old Royal Institute of International Affairs. It's the think tank of British intelligence. 
and it was located in Chatham House at the end of World War I. It was out of Chatham House that the Council on Foreign Relations in the U.S. was set up as a partner. And to cement that partnership further in 1961, they set up the Atlantic Council. Now, what's the argument coming from Chatham House? And this is even more compelling than what the people from Rand said. Uh, they had a conference on December 6th, and they had a guy named Keir Giles, who's supposedly an expert on Russia. He actually was in British intelligence for a while. Then the Bureau of British Intelligence he was in was shut down and privatized, and he ended up taking it over. And he's written two books, one called Moscow Rules and the other Russia's War on Everybody. And he was being interviewed along with Edward Lucas, the former senior editor of The Economist. Now, The Economist, as I'm sure most of your viewers know, was set up by the Rothschilds in the 19th century as the leading journal to promote British-controlled free trade, which was the policy of the empire. And that's what it still is to this day. Now, the two of them, Giles and Lucas, had one consistent line. It's not just Putin, it's Russia. It's the way Russians think. And they use this in, in talking, for example, about Crimea. They said Crimea was taken over by Catherine the Great, who had this idea of Russia as an empire. Putin talks about Peter the Great uh, and his empire. And so their whole, it, it's actually a racialist view of Russia as barbarians who are conducting war against everybody. Now, given the history of Britain, the imperial history of Britain and its slaughter of Indians and the Irish and you know, the, the fact that we had to make a revolution to free ourselves of them, what, what Giles was saying is that the British always think this way and always act this way. And he said that the, the Russians use these ideas of narratives. So what's their narrative of the post-Cold War period? The West didn't help them. Well, the West not only didn't help them, but the West looted them. But he's saying the West went with an honest intention to modernize Russia. And they ran into the corruption and cliqueism of the KGB. And therefore, there was nothing they could do to upgrade and modernize Russia. That's a complete, outright, bald-faced lie. They sent bankers in with money to buy up the Russian industry that they forced Yeltsin to privatize. And the current crop of Russian oligarchs were essentially people who became partners of the British and the American bankers in taking over Russian corporations. They shut down their industry. They deindustrialized Russia. They, they basically made sure their scientists didn't get paid by shutting down government institutions. And so you had a demographic collapse in Russia. And yet Lucas said, Russia's filled with self-pity because of their contribution in World War II, where they lost 25 to 30 million people. <laughs> I mean, Lucas essentially says it was their own fault. And secondly, the post-Cold War period was the fault of Russia for not having a Western-style free market economy. Well, the free market economy was the looting of Russia done by the Western bankers, which we're now seeing being done to the West. So when you listen to these guys, 
What they say is that you can't negotiate with the Russians because the Russians are inherently dishonest, untrustworthy. They combine the worst of Oriental despotism with this idea that they have a privilege to be an empire. That's the message that comes across from Giles and Lucas. And I think this was on December 6th. If people don't, don't believe me on this, go to Chatham House and look up the December 6th talk, Russia's War on Everybody. And you see these guys sitting around talking about why we have to destroy Putin and Russia before we can have negotiations. That's the mentality that comes from London. And that's who people like Blinken and Sullivan and before that, Madeleine Albright and Brzezinski and Henry Kissinger looked up to. Kissinger in the early 80s gave a speech at Chatham House where he said, I want to thank you. When I was Secretary of State, we relied on British Chatham House papers before we relied on our own State Department work. That's what Kissinger said. So this is a long-standing relationship. And how is it that the United States uh, came out of World War II in the most advantageous financial position possible and now is in this uh, horrible position of, of uh, you know, $30 trillion of national debt. And uh, I don't think Britain is doing all that well either, but it just doesn't make sense that the United States should have been so very, very powerful economically at, at that time. And yet stuff has happened to the point that now we are dependent on our military industrial complex to keep the cash flow going to, to make so that everybody can make payroll. That, that and the drug trade seem to be the main steadfast parts of our economy. How did we get here? Well, that, that goes back to the same problem. If you look at American history, we had a protracted war against the British Empire for the revolution, the War of 1812, the Civil War, because the, the British were preparing to intervene on behalf of the South in the Civil War. What did they not like about Lincoln? The tariff policy, the national banking policy, and the government working to advance scientific and technological progress and bring that into the private sector uh, manufacturing and agriculture. That's the American system, where the idea is that the government plays a role not the, the government doesn't own the banks, the government doesn't own the companies, but that the government ensures that credit is available to those people who will invest in ways that will add value to the economy. Now, the British system was deploying against that with free trade, with opposition to the tariff policy. In fact, in 1896, the University of Chicago Economics Department, known today as the Chicago Boys or Milton Friedman's thugs who ran these coup, the coup in uh, Chile in 1973, what was their policy? They set up the University of Chicago as the center of a free trade educational, uh, economic educational center to combat McKinley who was a Lincoln Republican who was committed to restoring tariffs to protect the American industry and, and agriculture. So that fight continued. Roosevelt did the same thing. Franklin Roosevelt, I mean, with the investment in, in infrastructure, with the programs that, that came out of the Depression where the government partnered with industries to help 
advance the cause of, of modernization, employment of science and new technologies. Same thing with Kennedy and NASA. Now, always against that were those people who said, well, the government is stealing. The government's getting in the way. The government doesn't know how to run things. And they use the boogeyman of socialism and communism. Just like today, you have conservatives who really don't know squat about Karl Marx and communism. who are calling Joe Biden a communist. You know, it just shows how our education system and our, our uh, intellectual discourse has collapsed to the, the fact that you look at these war hawk neoliberal Democrats and call them socialists or communists. They may be crazy, but they're not pushing for socialism. They're pushing for what is the classic definition of fascism, corporatism, where you have the corporate interlinked corporations running the government over and above national government. That's what the Great Reset is. That's what the Green New Deal is. That's Mussolini-style fascism, which was then tweaked into Hitler's fascism. So, you know, the, how did the British do it? They made us stupid. They made the Americans totally stupid. And, and LaRouche was warning about this in the 60s when he said, this is the intent of the rock sex drug counterculture to destroy American science, to destroy the idea of the American system, and instead to create a financial system which provides massive volumes of credit to speculators and to people who will take advantage of free trade to plunder and loot the, the poorer countries, but will can engage in dismantling U.S. industry. And what's one of the arguments they have? Well, if you can get cheaper labor and cheaper raw materials and cheaper transportation, if you have production in poor countries, then why do you need it in, in your home country? And so what do people in the home country depend on? Sports, entertainment, drugs. You know, the, 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 uh, the, the on the street economy, the, the black economy, certainly not investment in, in science and technology. So you've had this fight in American history. And the problem is we're losing it because our economic leaders went to Harvard where you had British professors like William Yandel Elliott. They studied at Oxford and Cambridge where you had the British free traders and they slandered people like Hamilton and Lincoln as statists, as people who were for the control by the government of the banking system. Now, what Hamilton said is, no, the banking system needs to be regulated. Whenever we regulated the bankers, our country prospered. But the super wealthy didn't make super profits. That's the whole idea of the American system. You open the economy for everyone. And still, people with good ideas will become rich. They just won't become multi-billionaires. So you know, this, this is a long rant, but if anyone studies LaRouche's economic policies. And he, he wrote extensively on this. And, you know, if you want, next time I'll have a, a reading list prepared, which you can post somewhere of some of LaRouche's uh, writings. But what he essentially argued is that the American system is based on the principle of natural law of how human creative discovery then is facilitated with credit to allow for improvements in the productivity of labor through improvements in the efficiency of energy, uh, infrastructure, 
uh, transportation, water and power management, and so on. The British system is all those things have to be privatized for profit as opposed for public good. But when you have an American system that's regulated well, there's public good plus profit. And the profit is not just limited to the top, but is spread to the whole population. And not through giveaway programs, but through work, through production. So, you know, I, I think I'm make, just making a point over and over again that much of what people think is smart economics, like less government intervention, like less spending, all of this is the British system. It comes from, it was what Dickens was uh, satirizing with characters like Scrooge. This is, I guess, a, a big thing uh, th that I've taken on is to try to trace everything all the way through. And you guys have, have done this. Uh, it's not an unbeaten path. But uh, where I am right now, I've, on my Monday shows, I'm reading A Law Unto Itself, the uh, history of the law firm of Sullivan and Cromwell. Mm -hmm. Um, by Lance, Nancy Lissigore and another uh, gentleman, I can't see it from here, but his, uh, the, the most important thing that I took so far is that the Panama Canal was, of course, Cromwell's big project. Uh, William Nelson Cromwell, the partner uh, who took over the firm when Algernon Sidney Sullivan died. And Sidney Sullivan had been against these poor permanent corporations that Cromwell was creating at the same time. And so with, with uh, Sullivan out of the way, Cromwell then becomes the major actor in the firm and he takes on as a client the uh, bankrupt French railroad uh, company in Panama that had uh, tried to build the first Panama Canal across Panama. Of course, that was part of Colombia at the time. And to make a long story short, William Nelson Cromwell got uh, the, the financing together. He got the American government to go along with it. He got the uh, Panamanian company to accept the offer, and he's all ready to close the deal. But the Colombian government stood in the way. They said, we want our cut, too. We, we, want, we want a piece of this. Mm. And, uh, and William Nelson Cromwell says, uh, over my dead body, you're not getting a dime. <laughs> And then he calls up uh, Teddy Roosevelt and says, "Hey, Teddy, can you send a couple ships down to uh, Central America? I need a little need a little assistance." And Roosevelt says, "Yeah, that's a great idea." So the I, the point is that it was William Nelson Cromwell, the lawyer for these uh, European uh, investments, that turns America into a military uh, uh, weapon to be used by the banks. And that's exactly how it started, was, was with the founding farmer, fa partner of Sullivan and Cromwell saying to Teddy Roosevelt, you know, hey, we, we, need, we need to take this uh, little Panama away from Colombia. Uh, can you help us out? And the government says, oh yeah, sure, that's, a, that's great. And so they did. And to wrap up what we've been doing this morning between us, Harley, is to say, well, this has always been a project of the British uh, financial system and still is. You're right about Sullivan and Cromwell. That's something that LaRouche called our attention to 30 years ago. And he, he said, watch these guys. Then you had a number of these similar law firms that were involved in the transformation of the U.S. financial system through the Drexel Burnham Michael Milken operations. 
the, the ones who worked with Enron, the, the ones who worked after 2008 to make sure that the largest, most corrupt banks were bailed out while people lost their homes. This is the this is a standard, the and the the back and forth nature between government and the law firms and the law firms and intelligence, the intelligence community. This is this is classic, and this is where you see the British and American special relationship is is based on this kind of uh, collaboration. I just. Uh noted yesterday on Twitter that uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has stated in no uncertain terms that the CIA assassination of his uncle, that meaning John F. Kennedy, our president, was a coup d'etat from which our democracy has never recovered. And if there's any theme to my work, it's that. It's exactly that. And uh, here he has come out and saying it after praising Tucker Carlson for for first opening the the bidding with a statement that uh, he had spoken to a very connected CIA uh, source who confirmed to him that indeed the CIA uh, was was part of the assassination of President Kennedy. If we could get the American people you know, to just kind of wake up and say, look, you, you, you had a coup d'etat. No wonder things are going bad. Let's go back and unpack that and, un and unwrap all of the damage that's been done and get back to being uh, what we're supposed to be. Because I think President Kennedy, like President Lincoln, like President Roosevelt, saw the danger of this uh, military-industrial complex that really is uh, the, the big muscle for this ancient financial system and take back our power from this apparently British sourced octopus that's grabbing all of our, all of our resources, grinding it up into, into cash and, and, and walking away with us left with nothing. Uh, we've got to wake up the American people, Harley. Well, and I think what Tucker Carlson did, and I'm not giving a blanket endorsement to everything he does, but on, on this point, he was very clear and raised the question of why it was that we have to uh, classify these documents for another 66 years. And the question is why that wasn't allowed to come out from the beginning. And as you and I have discussed, as it's been discussed by many, many people uh, over the last 50 years since the Kennedy assassination, the Warren Commission was clearly under the control of a man who hated Kennedy, a man who had been fired by Kennedy, a man who was a schemer and a backstabber, namely Alan Dulles. And you put someone like that in charge of the what's supposed to be uh, something that gives you closure to show that who that Oswald acted alone and that there was no conspiracy, you put in the hands of a, a perennial conspiracy, conspiracy maker, Alan Dulles. And so many holes exist in the Warren Commission report. You know, it, it's astounding that we're still talking about it, but the, the fact that it wasn't settled then is, is the thing that's concerning the same networks still control the intelligence community. 
They were involved in Watergate. I'm convinced Watergate was a coup to get rid of Nixon. Not that Nixon was great, but there was a desire to shift the direction of the United States more aggressively than Nixon was willing to do. The attempt to assassinate Ronald Reagan, the whole Bush one and Bush two presidencies, uh, the, the control that the agency had on Clinton, and the, the fact that Obama was a top-level operative, or not top-level operative, but controlled by the CIA. You know, whatever else he was, Trump had too many of these deep state figures around him, holding him back. And the whole Russia gate was a, 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 a sort of an extended coup d'etat to keep Trump from doing what he said he was going to do in cleaning out the swamp and working with the Russians. And now you have Biden, who clearly is not up to the task, but is definitely under control by the same network. So there's a continuity of policy. People are trying to find the connectos. Which person gave the order? Look instead at, at two things, the continuity of policy and follow the money. Who benefits from these coups and, and, and operations that are being run by the so-called U.S. government? And it's not the American people. And I, I think that people who say it's the government that's the problem, it's not our system of government, it's the corruption that we've allowed to occur. And part of that, what, one of the point that, points that Lincoln and, and Franklin Roosevelt and others made is that the corruption comes when you have a period of progress and people are doing better and they assume you can go on automatic pilot and just trust the institutions. And of course, this is where the British have a longer term view. Their view is you lose a few, but you stick around and you, you find the, the uh, way to get your policy back in. That's why it's so important what Palmerston said, we have no permanent allies, just permanent interests. The British don't change their interests. They change their coloration. They can be socialist. They can be fascist. You know, they, they can be third way. But the policy is still the one that benefits the bankers and the corporate cartels. And so I, I think if people, if you want to wake up, that's what you have to wake up to, that we've been under control of these corporate cartels, including the media. And that's why people have a, a, a smell there's something wrong, but can't quite put their finger on it. And, and that's been the case ever since... Uh... President Kennedy was killed in, in my own in my own life. You know, there's an there's a a sense of absence of reality. There's something that just I can't figure it out. I I don't I'm not happy, but I don't know what the answer is. And then, you know that that puts you in a, in one of those kind of deer in the, deer in the headlights mental <laughs> states where you're caught. You know, like okay, there's something dangerous out there. Do I go left? Do I go right? You know, which way is the guy going to kick the ball on the on the penalty kick? You know, yeah. <laughs> got to get it right. You know, <laughs> which <laughs> brings us back to congratulating Argentina and uh, that uh, pretty amazing, dramatic uh, um, soccer match. Um, and uh, gosh, I think of Argentina so often as as this tremendously beautiful, wonderful culture that has been victimized over and over again by the same forces that you and I have been talking about. Look, look in 1982, the Malvinas War, known in the West as the Falcon, Falklands War. 
Yeah. You know, Maggie Thatcher sent the British Army, or Navy rather, halfway around the world over an island that has very little of value except geopolitics, strategy. The idea that you have to keep your thumb on the, the uh, throat uh, of the countries that want to emerge, that, that are trying to break out from under the imperial control. So, you know, the whole world has this problem. And then you get someone interesting like Putin or Sergei Lavrov, who, because of the traditional Russian study of strategy and Russia studying, the, looking for the inverse of what the British are doing, the Russians are clear that we're still in what the British used to call the great game and geopolitics. The, the last quote I was looking for, and I couldn't find it, from this guy, Edward Lucas, the economist, former chief editor, at this Chatham House event, he was talking about the post-World War II period. And he said, what we got right, meaning the British and the American special relationship, is then we had good intelligence and good military. But then we gave up geopolitics. We thought geopolitics didn't matter anymore. Now we've got to get back to geopolitics. That's the British thinking. And that's what blindsides the Americans because they think when someone says geopolitics, it's some kind of mystical esoteric term that they have to pledge allegiance to. And they don't realize it's just a British strategy for how you use national culture to blindside countries so they don't realize they're being controlled by these polarized policies so they can be looted. And geopolitics is dividing the world into blocks so that the common interests of different countries can't come together against the empire. That's geopolitics. And you know, that's what Lucas was saying had been missing in the recent period. And he said, thankfully, with Ukraine, we're getting back to it. Yeah, geopolitics and, you know, killing off the, the young men at the same time. And yeah. That, that, you know, that I think has also been a theme of, of all these horrible wars is that somehow there's an interest in the elites to just get rid of a lot of those, you know, really active, you know, smart young men uh, that could be challenging to the elites uh, themselves. So let's uh, recruit the ones you can recruit with the ones who will accept your bribes and your positions and your your pat on the back and the ones who stand up against that ostracize them. And that gets us back to McDuff and, and, and the story behind my whole show, um, which I think is, you know, pretty clear that my dad stood up to them and, uh, uh, and did everything he could to, to stop them and let us, let us have a chance to recover. So we still have a chance. Um, we've got to spread the word. Um, and speaking of words, uh, it's been a tremendous pleasure all year, Harley. Uh, thank you again. And I give you the last word. What would you like to uh, share with us to, as far as thoughts for the next year? Well, we're, as you mentioned, we're fighting to get a recognition that there has to be a venue for negotiations. Some people are suspicious of the Vatican. I, I don't care if you're suspicious of the Vatican. If they let the authority of the Pope call for a conference to discuss ending the war, let's take that exit as a possibility. But what we need is an outcry from people who are still sitting on their hands as we're facing nuclear war, whether it's fear, whether it's the sense that it's too big, that there's nothing you can do. Don't succumb to that. 
That's the hybrid warfare, the brainwashing. It's going to depend on action of people in the next months to force governments to stop killing their own populations for the sake of Wall Street and City of London. So I would urge people, go to the, the LaRoucheOrganization.com, the SchillerInstitute.com. Uh, I, I put up still every single day a 10 to 12 minute update. Uh, today I talked about this question of, of why we need to have these negotiations and who's opposed to them. So it's on LaRoucheOrganization.com under uh, Harley's Updates. Check it out, folks. Thanks again, Harley Schlanger, and uh, have a great uh, short vacation. I look forward to seeing you in the next uh, in the next one, which will be in January. See All you in 2023.